This episode is part of Season 2 of MesoTV, a program created and produced by the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation. We thank the following sponsors for their support of our organization and its work. Merck, the Gorey Law Firm, Early, Lucarelli, Sweeney, and Meisenkoten, and AstraZeneca. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, some of you I may have met at the Miso Foundation conferences that I've been going to since I was four years old, it seems like, um, especially when they were in person, when they were a lot of fun for us all to be together. Um, I miss them. Um, but for those of you who don't know me, let me give a very brief introduction because it's really, you are the most important people on this Miso TV uh, session, not me. Um, so my name is Dan Sturman. I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician. Um, currently, I'm the director of pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine and the multidisciplinary pulmonary oncology program at NYU Langone Medical Center in New York City. That's a lot of words. Uh, before, you may have known that I spent uh, 26 years at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and I was one of the co-founders with Dr. Joe Freeberg of thoracic surgery of the Penn Mesothelioma and Plural Program. And we started that program in the late 1990s and really um, created what we thought was one of the premier uh, comprehensive mesothelioma programs, clinical and research programs in the country. And so, um, although I'm not a surgeon, I never never performed an extrapleural pneumonectomy and you wouldn't want me to in the first place. I saw a lot of patients in evaluation beforehand and a lot of patients afterwards. So I thought maybe we would just go around, that's my brief introduction to myself, um, and just say that one other thing is I'm really interested in new treatments for mesothelioma. Uh, I've spent my last, I guess, 25 years of my life developing new uh, immune-based uh, therapies for mesothelioma. And um, my hope someday, just to be completely honest, is that we can make surgery obsolete for mesothelioma and we'll have non-surgical cures. But that being said, we're going to hear about how surgery has hopefully cure you of your mesothelioma and, and change your lives. And so maybe we go around real quickly and do introductions. And um, I think I'm gonna ask Heather to start first uh, since she's the person I think I've met before. Uh, yeah. And um, I think she's very prominent in, in this area of people who I think you celebrate your lung leaving day, I believe. <laughs> yeah. Right? So yep. I don't remember. So yep. Heather, tell us briefly your story and then we can go around and hear everyone's story and then we can ask, I can ask more pointed questions. All right, thank you, Dr. Sturman. Uh, like you said, my name is Heather Von St. James. I am a uh, 15 year, actually November 21st will be 15 years uh, surviving mesothelioma. And I had an extra pleural pneumonectomy on February 2nd, 2005. Um, so that is our lung leave-in day as we call it. So of course I've offered that terminology for everybody to celebrate their lung leave-in day. Um, and it's, it's something that we celebrate as a day that I got my life back and um, started out as just something for my husband and I, and, and we ended up sharing it with a hundred of our closest friends. So um, yeah, I've been very fortunate to not only survive, but enjoy and live very well these last 15 years since my EPP, despite issues, which we'll get into later. But it's an honor to be here. So thank you, Dr. Sturman, for moderating this. And um, I'll pass it over to Mr. Panza. Okay. John. I, um, yeah, I'm uh, John Panza. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I had my EPP in 2012 um, after receiving chemotherapy and then before getting radiation. 
Um, I was 38 when I had it done. So like Heather, I was, um, you know, you know, pretty, pretty young uh, for the most part. Um, I have, um, so it's been, it's been eight years now. Um, I have had a recurrence of MISO um, 2019 last year. I had a lymph node taken out that was cancerous and I've had a little bit of chemo since then, but you know, for the most part, I've been fine. And uh, um, as I'll talk about, um, I play drums and I play tennis today and I work out and I do all the things despite only having one left lung. That's, a, that's all I have left, so yeah. Let's go to Jim. Um, thank you, doctor. My name's Jim Shepard. Um, I had my lung removed about a year ago, last October. Uh, my left lung um, was diagnosed in April of 2019 and went through the chemo and then the surgery and then the radiation. And right now, they noticed in the last scan two very small spots on my right lung that were indeterminate. They're keeping an eye on it. And they have said that after I have my scan in December, that if, they, if they've grown, then they will probably start uh, around the chemo again, which the last time I responded very well to the uh, the. Uh, uh, pathologist report after they removed my lung showed that the chemo had killed over half of the tumors that were in Wonderful. my body. So if, if it's more chemo, I'm, I'm all for it. Okay, great. We'll, we'll get back to you on, on that more chemo issue. Christopher. Yeah, I'm Chris Wright. I'm uh, 44. I had my pneumonectomy about, I'd say about a year, year and a half now it's been. Uh, still, still trying to define my path. Uh, as far as uh, what to do now, uh, I was in law enforcement, and uh, and so I found that I couldn't do that job anymore. So I took an early retirement. So here I am, 44, retired, and uh, you know uh, we, I did go through the chemo. I had six months, six six rounds of chemo, and that shrunk the tumor that I had on my right lung by more than half, which is what allowed me to have the surgery. Great, and went from there. Terrific. So. All right, so we've met all of our patient panelists, our, our mesothelioma warrior panelists uh, initially, but there are a lot more questions I have for the group. So let me let me lay out uh, my first question and please feel free to answer, uh, just don't jump on top of each other simultaneously. Um, so my first question is uh, about how it felt initially when you got the diagnosis of mesothelioma. Had you ever heard of the disease before other than watching TV at one o'clock in the morning? Uh, and um, what were the first uh, things that doctors told you about the disease um, well before you ultimately went to see a surgeon to talk about you know, interventions? Who wants to start? John, go ahead. Okay, I guess I'll start. Um, I was diagnosed by my surgeon. Um, I had the benefit of having a surgeon who had trained under Dr. Sugarbaker um, and here worked at the Cleveland Clinic. So when he went in and found what had been ailing me, these, this, these things um, surrounding my lung that were uh, causing fluid um, to build up in the uh, pleural space, um, he knew exactly what he was looking at from the very beginning. So I was extremely lucky to kind of, you know, uh, jump, I, I kind of jumped the line in essence. And 
Uh, he told me flat out what it was. He told me flat out what it meant. He told me flat out um, some of the statistics, which obviously he, you know, he begrudgingly told me and then uh, told me that he thought the best thing for me was an EPP. Um, he is a surgeon. He's a huge advocate for surgical techniques um, in addition to uh, chemo and radiation. And when he offered it up, my wife and I just said, let's do it. Let's go for it. Why not? You know, I was already breathing through a broken lung. I might as well get the thing out and <laughs> see what it's like to breathe through one good lung. So I ask, you said you said you had been ailing. What were the symptoms that you had before you were diagnosed by your surgeon? Yeah. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I, I am a professor. I teach, but I also play music and I, I play professionally. I play, I travel, I tour. And I had started noticing I was um, just having pain in my side. I had been having a uh, sharp pain in my side for months and I thought I had pulled a muscle. And uh, my doctor, you know, put me on some medication and tried making the pain go away and it didn't really work. And then I ended up developing a fever um, in early 2012. I had the flu. Um, I did not get a flu shot in 2011. And so I got the flu and I went in uh, to get checked out and they x-rayed me and they found the uh, pleural effusion and they drained it and then it came back and then they drained it again. Then it came back. At that point, they're like, okay, we probably should open you up and give this a look. And, uh, and that's how they found it. So it's one of those things where if I had gotten a flu shot and not gotten the flu, <laughs> who knows what would have happened. Um, it's just one of those quirky things. Um, I think almost everyone who's diagnosed will say the same thing. We'll come back and hear more of your story. Who wants to go next? I'll go. I had just had a baby. So I was a new mom had a three month old baby and I had had a C-section and upon being released from the hospital, they told me I was a little bit anemic. So I want to, you know, keep an eye on that. And then I had only gained five pounds through the whole pregnancy, which should have been alarming, but my doctor didn't seem to worried about it, but she's like, no, you're fine. You're healthy. The baby's healthy. Everything's good. So um, those were the first two, like in hindsight, 2020, uh, tip-offs that something was was amiss. You had, but, Heather, you um, had no breathing problems during your pregnancy? No, none at all. Well, if I did, I attributed to having a big baby, oh. you know, and her feet up in my ribs. Um, yeah, so it's like I was, you know, I had a big, she was almost nine pounds. Wow. So okay. it was like, if I had breathing problems, it was because I had this giant belly and, you know, what pregnant mother doesn't have breathing problems. So, um, but after I had her, um, about a month after I had her, I started like John getting a fever. It's like every day I would get a fever around the same time. And it was a low grade 99.9 to 100.5 um, fever, just slight that would last a couple hours. And it was every time in the evening. Yep. So I'd take a couple Tylenol and it would go away and, and, Next night, same thing happened. And then I had to go back to work. I worked in a salon. I was a hairdresser. And um, I was having a really hard time breathing while I was working. I would have to, like, bend over at the waist in order to be able to get a deep breath. And um, finally, I uh, one morning, I got up and I went downstairs to get laundry. And I grabbed the laundry basket. And halfway up the stairs, I was literally gasping for air. Oh, my gosh. And... I got to the top of the steps and I was still gasping for air. Lily, the baby was in the swing at the time and she was sleeping and I sat down on the couch and I passed out. And I woke up an hour later, she was like rambling and, and I was like, oh my God, something's wrong with me. 
So I called my doctor and he thought I had a heart virus and postpartum symptoms. And so he's like, take some iron. We'll check you in a week, see if anything's any better. And a week later, I was not any better. And they went back and did a chest x-ray to see if my heart was enlarged. And that's when they found the fluid around my lung. Like John, I had a pleural effusion. And I think he saw the mass then, but he didn't want to say anything because he was, like my doctor said, he goes, I'm in the business of making people feel better. I don't like finding things wrong. And so he was devastated. And he sent me to St. Paul. I live in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And he sent me to the hospital to get my fluid drained off my lung. And it was that doctor, ultimately a pulmonologist, who diagnosed me with mesothelioma. And, you know, hindsight, the symptoms were all obvious. But at the time, they all could have been dismissed as postpartum symptoms. So it's understandable why things were not caught right away. But I was fortunate and um, I was sent to Boston to Dr. David Sugarbaker, you know, 15 years ago for a second opinion. And um, he was the one who advocated, obviously, for the EPP. So, it's and I was young and healthy and decided to go for it. Yeah, so. It's really interesting that both you and John presented with fever. John, I wonder whether you, you probably never had the flu. My guess is that, that was yeah. not the flu, it was probably mesothelioma. Well, what Heather, what Heather pointed out, no, actually, I did have the flu. That's the curious thing. Um, I so had the I. flu. I had the flu when I was actually diagnosed, but uh, or when I was diagnosed with a pleural effusion. But I was having the same thing as Heather at six o'clock to six thirty every single night for almost a month. My yep. temperature would bump up to about ninety nine, and yep. it happened. I would get a little flush, and I take my temperature, and it said ninety nine. And then by seven o'clock, it had gone back down again. But every yep. single night between six and seven, and like we used clockwork. to work. Yeah, like clockwork every single day, and. That little fever bump was something I noticed, but I just didn't really think much about it. I figured I was probably fighting a virus or something or, or whatever. It was just annoying. But, it was yeah. annoying. It was like, oh, but geez, it, here I go again. But in you retrospect, know? every single thing was like, you know, I look at pictures of myself from then and I didn't realize how pale I looked. Mm -hmm. um, Jim, I, never Jim, had, I, I never had breathing problems, by the way. I never had breathing problems. My lung was collapsed. Half of my oh, lung wow. was collapsed, and I had no breathing problems at all. Incredible. Jim, what was your story? How did you find out you had mesothelioma? My wife and I had gone on a vacation out to Arizona to visit a cousin of ours. And um, when we got up to the Grand Canyon, where it's a high elevation, I started having real problems breathing and just put it down to the fact that we were in a high elevation and there was less oxygen available. And a lot of the locals there said, yeah, it takes quite a while to get used to it and that. And there were a couple of days where we were at the Grand Canyon where I couldn't even get out of the car. My wife would go and take pictures and then show them to me. And so that's how I saw it. When we got home, um, I was feeling better, but there was still like a tightness. And um, I would have problems sometimes catching my breath and sometimes having enough breath to even be able to speak. And um, this went on for a little while and it would be real off and on. And then uh, one day it was really bad. I, the night before I was up half the night coughing, I couldn't catch a breath. So we went to um, a walk-in clinic and they took a chest x-ray and the doctor took us back into his office and said, I want to show you this. 
the entire left side of my chest was white. Um, there was so much fluid there, it had collapsed my lung. And they sent me to emergency room where they, um, they drained the, the, the fluid off three different times. Um, also did a, a lung puncture, I think, to drain fluid out of my lung. Um, and we're able to, they, they said, well, you have a cancer. We don't know for sure yet. So I met with the oncologist. We live in a rural area in central Wisconsin, and he had um, had them do biopsies, and it came back as mesothelioma. And he said, I'm going to send you down to UW-Madison uh, because if you are a candidate for surgery, they have uh, entire teams that do nothing but that. And ironically, the doctor who did my surgery also trained with Dr. Sugarbaker. And so I went down to Madison. They started me on four rounds of chemo. Um, three months later, after I was done with the chemo, went in for scans. They said, let's take, uh, take a look here. We're going to check your heart and everything. Said everything looked good. I was a candidate for surgery. So we went ahead and did it. Chris, how about your story? Oh, you know, now I've had time to reflect. You know, I was at work one night. I, I was the uh, supervisor on deep knots at the, at the jail. And I was talking to one of my officers and I started coughing real hard and I passed out. And I didn't even remember passing out. I just came back to and continued typing. And my officer had already called the nursing staff. And I did. And they asked if I wanted to go to the hospital. Well, I, I didn't think anything was wrong. I just had the flu and I thought that was what it was, is that the flu, I'm just going to work sick and, and this and that. And then about two weeks later, I was done with the flu. I was still kind of having some breathing issues, but I thought, you know, maybe it's still with me. I don't know, but we went to Colorado and went in the high altitude and it, I couldn't do anything up there. I couldn't breathe. It never got better. And then we came back. And I went back to work. I didn't think anybody of it. I didn't go to the hospital. I wasn't getting fevers. You know, my wife's a nurse. She was checking on me all the time. And then one day after work, we were sitting in the hot tub and she said, your lips are blue and your fingernail beds are blue. That's really strange because we're sitting in 104 degrees water. And I said, yeah. And she goes, well, let's go to the doctor in the morning. Let's get a chest x-ray, see what they say. And so we just went to our local doctor. They did a chest x-ray and there was no lung there. So I had no idea what had happened, you know, and they didn't know what was going on. So they sent me to a uh, heart, they saw that my heart had been pushed over as well. And so they sent me to a heart specialist. And when we got down there, the doctor came in and he said, uh, we know that you had uh, cancer when you were a kid. Cause I was a childhood uh, cancer survivor as well. What kind of cancer did you have, Chris? I had a Wilms tumor that had uh, taken my left kidney. And they removed that, and uh, I mean, I was—I almost didn't make it there. I was stage four by the time they found that one. But uh, you know, I went extra long on the chemo and the radiation, and, and eventually beat that. I was 11 when that happened, and I, I came into remission at 13. So, uh, but anyway, we—the uh, first doctor he came in, he said, "This is your Wilms tumor that has come back." And uh, there's nothing we can do about it. You need to oh go home God. and get all your affairs in order uh, because it's about that time. Oh. And so, of course, my wife and my kids and, you know, everybody was there and everybody was upset. And we're like, I'm, we after he left, we're like, they haven't even done any tests. 
You know, they tried to go in my lung and figure out what it was, but it was a failed test. They couldn't get in there because they tried to go in the collapsed lung and there was no room in there to, to get any fluid. And so then we went to uh, UT Southwestern in Dallas and uh, that's who uh, diagnosed me with the mesothelioma, which you know, the only thing I'd ever heard about that was on TV at night. And they started about talking about doing uh, a pneumonectomy. What was the pneumonectomy they were talking about? High pack. A high pack pneumonectomy. And it's more we talked to them, the more concerned we got. And then we found out that they had never done the procedure before. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and I was, yeah, and I was going to be the first one to do that. And so my wife, who's a genius, got on the, the – uh, mesothelioma awareness groups and met Heather and Heather pointed us to Dr. Ripley in Houston. And we went to Dr. Ripley in Houston and within 30 minutes of meeting Dr. Ripley, we had 200% times more information than anybody else could give us. Right. And he made us feel comfortable. He made us feel like we were going down the right Save path. Life. And he asked us what we thought about everything. Just saying, instead of saying, this is what we're going to do. You know, this is how we're going to do this. Right. It just, I mean, it really Ripley and, and, and Heather saved our lives, saved my life. So, um, well done Heather. And by the way, your t-shirt, great t-shirt. I love the t-shirt. <laughs> I feel badly. I didn't wear all my t-shirts that I got from all the, the conferences, the, the music foundation <laughs> conferences. That I, had. I have them in my closet somewhere. So let me, let me take the next step because uh, clearly all of you are here and have had good experiences with the surgery, but uh, for full disclosure for the people who might be watching this, we still don't know. There is no proof, A, that surgery is the right thing to do for mesothelioma. There's actually a trial right now um, that is just finishing accrual in England to try to answer the question whether chemotherapy and surgery versus chemotherapy alone is better. So we don't know yet. And also there's been a huge shift over the last, I would say 10 to 20 years about leaving the lung behind and doing lung sparing surgery, so-called extended pleurectomy decortication or pleurectomy. Um, so I wondered, take me back to the discussions when you first met with the surgeons and clearly your surgeons are all superb and this is not about that. I really wanted to ask more about what was the discussion about, were there options? Were non-surgical options offered to you? And were there minimally invasive or less invasive options which might have allowed you to keep the lung? Was that part of the discussion at any time? Well, I mean, I can say right now that when I talked to my surgeon, he told me that if he did a decort on me, that he would see me within a year or two. He was convinced that um, the best solution for me was the EPP primarily because of my age, um, but also because of just my lifestyle and the way I live and, you know, playing music and traveling and, and playing sports. And his feeling was, is that having one good lung in my case would be better than having a, um, a decort done on the one lung and having some of the pain associated with that, the after effects, um, he just felt that it was best for my particular case, but my doctor also did non EPPs. I mean, he, you know, this was just what he felt was best in my case. Um, but we talked about all the options 
but um, he, he felt this was the best one and I wasn't going to argue with him. (laughs) How about others? Well, of course, well, I saw Sugar Baker, who, you know, 15 years ago, we're talking dark ages of mesothelioma. And that's pretty much all he did was take the entire lung. And I will say that throughout the year, seeing him up until his unfortunate passing, I did see him progress into more of the lung sparing surgeries. So even he progressed, you know, being such an advocate of the EPP changed his outlook too. So, you know, and in talking with as many patients as I do, you know, I, I know it was right for me, um, much for the same reason as, as John, I was young. Um, I told him to be as aggressive as he needed to be in order to get rid of it so I could be here to raise my child. Um, you know, I, I wanted to be here to, to be with her. And I was like, do whatever you need, be as aggressive as you need to be. So it was the take the whole lung, basically. And like I said, 14, 15 years ago, that's all he did, along with the heated chemo. Now, I don't know if the heated chemo is the reason why I'm still here, um, because I know it didn't work in others, or if I'm just, I was fortunate enough, early enough. You know, it's one of those questions that I struggle with every single day. Um, Why me? Why am I still here? And why I'm so passionate about giving back and getting people to help. Um, So yeah, there was no other option for me. It was just, this is what we're doing. And throw everything at it, but the kitchen sink and that if you have to and make me live so I can raise my kid, who is now a 15 year old and starts driver's ed next week. So, you know, <laughs> it worked. So, yeah. But I mean, it's, it's not been without, really, you know, without sacrifice too. So it hasn't been, people think, oh, you have an EPP and it's just great. Everything's wonderful and, and your life is fantastic. But we can get into that later. There's yeah, definitely we'll risks in and and stuff involved with the decisions. So it's not just like cut and dry. Chris, how about you? Did they, did they you have options when you were presented? I, I really didn't because my lung was, was trashed. It was completely gone. Uh, it was, huh? yeah, it, it had completely collapsed and, and there was uh, the disease was all over it. And so the, really the only option that I felt and the doctor felt was to get it out. And if he could get it out and get it all, that was our big goal. That was what we were trying to do. And he was able to do that. So, uh, but no, we, we didn't really have a lot of options at that point. Jim, were you given options? Yeah. The very first time we met with the uh, oncologist down in Madison, he, he went over the whole trimodal uh, treatment plan. And he explained to us the different options of surgery, what, you know, the advantages and disadvantages were. And then after I'd gone through the chemo um, and they checked my heart and my uh, lung function and all of that, I met with the surgeon and he again explained both. And he said he felt that in my case, the total removal was the best option um, for extended life. And and he felt that uh, because I had been very active my whole life in physical work and that, Um, I was strong enough, even at my age, because I was 67 at the time, um, strong enough to be able to get through it. And so, you know, I just kind of figured these guys know more than I do. And if (laughs) if he says, this is your best option, that's what I'm going to take, you know. 
I just want to make a couple quick comments for the people who are watching. I think it's important to note, and I think we've heard that there were lots of reasons why your doctors, your surgeons chose to do an EPP. Um, we don't know what the best operation is, and it may well be very personalized. Um, it may be, uh, you know, in Chris's case, if the lung was non-functional anyway, it might as well be removed. You, you're likely to do better physiologically in that case. Um, it might do to cell type. It might do to other issues. John's career and, and his passions uh, may, 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 things are unique. But I think it's important to note that we don't know um, necessarily whether one is better than the other. And there actually may be some data that the pleurectomy may, in some cases, it's never been in a randomized study, may lead to a little bit longer survival. And you look at in large numbers of patients. Again, but we still don't know. And, and that we rely upon the expertise of the surgeon and, um, and the individual uh, characteristics of your own disease to, to, make, that, to make that decision. Um, I also think to say it's a, the pleurectomy is a much more complicated procedure if you want to get all the tumor out. It's a harder operation. Uh, and it's, the other thing I wanted to mention, and we'll get back to this in a minute, is what John said, which is that sometimes because we have two lungs, that removing one and leaving the other lung, which is presumably unaffected, and having all the blood flow go to a single normal lung is superior than leaving one damaged lung behind, and the blood is then divided between one damaged lung and one normal lung. And so it's really interesting in terms of me as a pulmonologist, the physiology discussions that we have with patients about whether it's better to take a lung out rather than leave one behind. So We'll get to that in a minute. I wanted to go then ask the group, and let's start with Jim since he's been third or fourth in our discussions each time. We'll start with Jim. What was the hardest part that you remember about the surgery? Um, uh, obviously, you weren't awake for the actual surgery, but what was the hardest part of going through an EPP for you? Um, you, you know, it, it's, it's strange. The, I found that in situations like this, or like when you're given a diagnosis that we were all given, I don't play the why me, um, because there's, there's no answer to it, and it would just make me crazy. So I just kind of approach it as, I may not like this, but this is what it is, so what must I do to get through it? So when they said, okay, we're going to remove the entire lung, it was like, okay, this is just another thing that I have to to learn about and and I talked to the doctors and and you know I, I said I exercise every day and they and I said will I be able to do it afterwards and they said absolutely and they told me to keep exercising prior to the the surgery and I mean I had the surgery and every day the doctors told me I was ahead of everybody else and I was out of the hospital in five days amazing um, um, I just physically just being a little more tired than I used to be, you know, and, and kind of sometimes having to catch my breath where normally I wouldn't, that's only, that's been the hardest. We'll, we'll get, we'll get to how everyone is right now and what the effects upon your current life. I really wanted to know more Jim about you and John and Chris and Heather about the actual procedure and what was the hardest part for you of the procedure. It sounds like there wasn't a hard part. You did really well. Did you have a lot of pain? Was there a lot of shortness of breath? Were there complications? The, it, it was the pain after the surgery 
um, as the nerves would regenerate in that, you'd get those jolts that just knock you over. They just, you know, and sometimes they would last 15, 20 minutes and it just feels like you're being stabbed. And it's like, oh my God, what do, what do I have to do here? But then it goes away, you know? So that, that was really, as far as pain or that, no, they're, they're you know, I don't know. I've had a lot of, I've been in a car wreck where I was nearly killed and, you know, broken back. And I've, I've had, well, counting this lung removal, my 11 surgeries. And so it was kind of like, man. Hard to face you. John, what was the (laughs) hardest part for you? The actual surgery itself wasn't too bad. Like Jim, I would have been out in five days were it not for the fact that I developed AFib uh, while I was in the hospital. AFib kept me in for five more days. So I actually was only there 10 days because of AFib. Um, You know, my biggest complaint after the surgery was that it was really loud in ICU for two days. Um, The nurses and doctors were having a blast. They got a dance party. Um, They were having a good time. So I I mean, I just wanted to sleep. (laughs) Um, Pain-wise, after the surgery, um, frankly, I, I, I don't even remember having much pain at all. Um, I did develop Horner's syndrome almost immediately. So, um, after surgery, I was in the bathroom one morning, I think it was day three or four. And I looked in the mirror and this pupil was really, really small. And this one was huge. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that doesn't look right. <laughs> so I pressed the button nurse comes in and like, oh, we need to talk to the doctor about this. <laughs> You know, but aside from, you know, the shock of it all, um, frankly, it was just being in the hospital 10 days. I missed my daughter intensely. Um, she was four at the time. And um, it especially stinks because I live all of like five minutes from the Cleveland Clinic. So being able to look out That's the convenient. window, well, it is convenient, <laughs> but it's also like torture because I'm looking out the window of the hospital room, right? And I'm looking up the hill into Cleveland Heights and I could practically see my neighborhood. Oh. Um you know, but no, pain wise, uh, like Jim said, uh, there's this weird electrical meets cramp thing that happens when you're healing after having something removed like that. And every once in a while, it just felt like something in there just went, yeah, and then it would just kind of release. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, to be frank with you. I thought it was going to be awful. Um, I was up and walking within... 24 hours. That's amazing. Chris, how about you? It sounds like you had your own personal nurse with you at the time. So what was the hardest part for you? (laughs) My wife said, if I wake up from this thing and I'm hurting, I'll know I'm alive. And boy, did I know I was alive. Uh, The next day after the surgery, they were, the doctors, I guess, got into an argument because I was having some heart issues at the time. And they were thinking that the epidural was going to affect my heart. And so they kept turning it off. And when they turned it off, it was like I was drowning. It's what oh. It made me feel like I was drowning and it was crushing my heart is what it felt like. And so some panic would set in and they'd come in and put something down my nose to look in my lung. And it was a big mess. And, and finally, my, my wife went out and called Dr. Ripley and he came up there. And next thing you know, I got a whole set of new people in there and everything's <laughs> working again. So... Uh, but yeah, at first it, it was really, really painful, but wow. uh, after they got it figured out and, and Dr. Ripley really took over, then I didn't have any problems. And, and 
you know, I started walking as soon as they let me. And then uh, I was out in, I think, nine days. Uh, But then once I got released after the nine days, I kind of went downhill. Uh, We live uh, just north of Dallas and the hospitals in Houston. And it's a five hour drive. And I didn't know if I was going to make it back. Uh, we'd stopped at, I don't know if you guys have ever heard the little Bucky store or it's like a convenience store that's world famous. I went in there to use the restroom and I almost collapsed because I, they had me on so much oxygen when I left, I guess we were on what, nine liters and my body just, it just, it went into kind of a shock and luckily we made it home. And then after I, I got situated, I had the shocks and stuff as well, but but those fluid. first, Talking about the fluid. oh, it also had fluid that was building up, and they kept having to go in through my back and and thoracentesis, yeah, and they kept draining the fluid that was collecting. Uh, but I mean, yeah, I had a lot of problems right at first, but then it, it kind of evened out and mellowed out after a while. So, Heather, what was the hardest part for you? So I ended up going into kidney failure four days after uh, my surgery, and they think it was due to the massive dose of cisplatin um, during the surgery. And my creatinine levels levels kept creeping up and up and up. And they was like, if they don't go down by the morning, you're going to have to have dialysis. And that was like a really clarifying moment. It was four days after I was in the step-down unit. And I remember being terrified because I did not want to have dialysis. Um, and so we we just were like, okay. And I'm like, okay, body, start working, start working. <laughs> and I don't know what happened if uh, my body started listening to me or what, but my creatinine levels lowered the next morning. My kidney function kicked in um, and it started working too well. And so then I was filtering out all the magnesium and potassium. So I had to take all the supplements, giant potassium pills, and yeah, like this big. <laughs> horse pills, they call them. You know, horse pills yeah. and magnesium supplements and potassium supplements, which is the grossest tasting stuff in the world. And so I was in the hospital actually 18 days until oh, all of that wow. um, evened out. So I went through like four roommates, and one of them was like legit crazy. John knows about crazy roommates in the hospital he's been there too. <laughs> yeah. um, I got accused of like having a dance party at night by her. And so it was like- That was the nurses no from pride. John's hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, <laughs> so just, you know, not knowing what my what was going on with my body. Like I said, the surgery itself was fine. And I woke up breathing fine. Like, okay, I got one lung. And I thought it was really cool how only one side of my chest moved and, you know, and, and stuff like that. But- the pain, I don't really remember much. Um, I got on a good pain med- regimen or pain management regimen. Um, so I didn't have a whole lot of pain per se, but it was the kidney function and getting all of that stabilized was the hardest part for me. Okay. I think we have time for one more round of questions for everyone. And, and, and this is probably the most important question that you can help guide those who are watching, which is what it's like to live uh, with a single lung uh, after having gone through an EPP and how it's affected your lives um, in, in the past or even in an ongoing basis. And um, let's start with Heather. How, how has it affected your life? 
So the first few years were great. Um, I felt good. And, you know, I did chemo and radiation and everything. And about the third year in, I started knowing, noticing numbness in my left hand, like a tingling. I was like, well, that's weird. And it got progressively worse. And what they realized is that the radiation had destroyed the ulnar nerve because I had such massive amounts of radiation. Um, and the radiation throughout these last 14 years has continued to do damage to my um, nervous system. And my voice is weird because I have a paralyzed vocal cord from it. That just happened like three years ago. Um, so radiation, the gift that keeps on giving all these years later, I'm still having effects. Um, I have chronic pain. Um, and I'm active, but it's like, I can't usually use my left hand much. And I, you know, you, you adapt and instead of using my hand for stuff, I use my elbow if I need to carry something and, and you just, you adapt to things. Um, Are you still working Heather as a hairdresser? I, I had to quit my job. There's no way that I could stand behind the chair like I used to. I used to work 13 hour days and standing behind the chair was just, it was not an option again. So now I sold my business. And so now I just do basically patient advocacy and um, coaching. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I left one career and it's the, the cancer gave me something new and it gave me a whole new way of life. Um, and I, I make the best of it. I am not going to be a victim. I refuse to be a victim. I'm still alive. I'm still here. Um, I'm still very much enjoying life. And despite all of the whatever's going on, I'm not going to give up. So um, I guess that's the biggest piece of advice is it's not going to be what life was before surgery because living with one lung is not normal and your body will adapt. But and you have to do what's, what you're going to do to live the best life you can. And if that means quitting your job and retiring early and doing something else, then do it. But, you know, it's like whatever works for you. And, and this is what I ended up doing. So thank you I'm so much for sharing your thankful. story. It, it's really inspirational to me. Thank you. Jim, how has it affected you having gone through this? Um, it gave me a chance to see my, the birth of my granddaughter which is our only granddaughter. Um, I still get emotional about that. But, you know, the thing is, living is luxury, okay? Even if it's not what it used to be, I'm still here. I still get to see the sunrise, you know? Um, I still get to go out and walk on this earth. And uh, I may not be able to go out and walk the, the distances I used to, but I just put that down to the fact that I'm not 19 anymore, you know? I'm just getting, I'm an old man now, so that's all there is to it. And, and it's just, you know, life is what you make it and it's good and I'm happy. And I know that this will probably be the end of me, but the end comes for all of us and I'm just, happy to be here right now. And if having this, had this surgery has given me this year and a half that I, that I wouldn't have had, hey, I'm all for it. Are there any, any things that are, you find limiting, uh, anything that you find disrupting to your life? I, I, I fully appreciate everything that you just said. Are there any things that you find difficult now? 
uh, because of having gone through what you've gone through. Well, I don't run upstairs anymore. <laughs> I walk slowly upstairs now. Um, and sometimes even that will, will, you know, cause me to be out of breath. And it's really unusual um, weather. If it's very humid, I have problems breathing and it's very tight. And when the barometer drops very low, it's just like they put a belt around my chest and are pulling it tighter and tighter. Mm. And that becomes difficult. And so a lot of times um, when I'm just sitting in my chair, even though we've got snow on the ground, I'll have a fan blowing on me just because it makes it a little bit easier to breathe. Yes. Um, but other than that, hey, I'm good. Well, you and Heather are incredibly inspirational, and I'm going to go out and, and walk around outside, even though it's raining. Chris, how has this affected your life? It's, uh, it's affected it completely. Uh, I was in law enforcement for 25 years, and uh, I had to retire because of the, the pneumonectomy. I wasn't able to, to uh, in my mind, and physically perform the way that, you know, my my guys needed me to, to perform. And so I went ahead and retired and, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's still a work in progress. I'm still trying to figure it out. You know, I, I have chronic pain. I get fatigued real easy when I'm walking around. Uh, you know, I, I can walk, our mailbox is probably a hundred, hundred yards down the road and I got to stop three or four times on that little trip back and forth. And so, you know, it's, it's a, I'm still trying to figure out what, what's going on and what, what I'm going to do. You know, uh, being retired is, is great. I get to spend all day with my wife and, and I get, you know, Does she feel the same way? <laughs> Does she feel the same way? She's excited about spending the whole day with you on, on days. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, I have grandkids and, and, you know, with the pandemic, I don't get to see them very much. And so being in isolation has really affected a lot of what's going on as well. But, you know, uh, it's just one day at a time for me, you know, just, uh, I'm happy. I'm not down. I'm not regretting anything that happened. Uh, I'm glad to be alive and I'm very appreciative for everybody who helped me and, and I'm glad to be here. It's just, you know, once you've done something for so long, it's kind of hard to, if you can't do it anymore, trying to figure out what your new direction is going to be. So at least for me. Right, last but not least, John. Yeah. So um, in the immediate, um, the big issue was whenever you have a, a, a lung taken out, they take a rib as well. And um, having that rib taken out over the years has resulted in my right shoulder dropping about a half inch, almost an inch. So it does this because my spine's doing this now. Um, you know, nature abhors a void. So the natural instinct of all the ribs is to want to do this. Well, if they do this on one side and this on the other, you know, yeah. So that aspect of it developed over the first, like, you know, five, six years. And it did, it did affect to a certain extent my posture and therefore the way I play drums. I had to adjust some of my gear, which is, I mean, I guess happens also with age. So it's not, <laughs> I'm 47 now. So, I mean, I, you know, it, I, it's normal as you get older when you play music, especially something physical like drums that you have to make adjustments. Um, I don't stand and play guitar. You know, I'm physically hitting things with my, my hands. Um, the other issue that I ran into has to do with the Horner syndrome. 
um, which was really unusual. I don't sweat on the right side of my body anymore. Um, and because of that, um, going to the beach, which we do, we still love doing it and everything, um, can be tough on me a little bit because I don't um, sweat like a normal human being anymore. So I don't cool like a normal human being anymore. <laughs> and that can sometimes cause some issues. I have over the years started to develop some sweat um, on the right side. I remember once at a band practice, I finished a song and I went like this. And my, my, my bandmates saw a little sweat. And they were like, oh my God, <laughs> go for it. They were like, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I, you know, <laughs> those are small things. Um, I play tennis every Friday. I do Pilates twice a week. I play drums twice a week. I walk with my daughter every single day. In fact, when I finish this, I'm going to walk up to her school and walk home with her. Um, you know, I, stairs can be challenging. Um, I just have to take my time sometimes and stop every couple of flights if I have to. Um, in my building, when the elevator's not working, I sometimes even have to carry stuff up the stairs. Um, like Jim mentioned, humidity. Um, humidity can be bad. Uh, extreme cold can also be the same thing. It can be a little challenging. Um, this mask wearing thing is going to be great for me because I can get away with wearing a mask in the wintertime. So it'll actually keep me warmer. Um, I don't know. You know, it's my lung actually, my remaining lung actually got larger. Um, it grew. Um, so now I have, they say I have about 66 to 70% of right. as if I'd had two lungs. And that's simply because I kept exercising as soon as, you know, I got the lung out. So that did push my heart over a little bit. Um, so whenever I go in for doctor's appointments, they like to bring in the uh, doctors in training to try to find my heart, <laughs> which is always really entertaining. Sometimes like they also much, don't tell them I'm... It's like well, the, the Wizard of Oz. Is, You're like the yeah. two-man. Yeah. Well, the best is exactly they tell you... The same. But yeah, when they tell you, when they don't tell the doctors uh, in training that you're missing a lung and they have That's you listen rude. to the right yeah, side. They shouldn't do that. Oh, it's so mean. Um, no, so I, I, I don't know. It, it's, I just tend to plow through life. I don't, I don't think much about it. And I just, I just go through and um, it's, it is what it, it, it is the challenge that I've been presented. And um, I guess that's what I just have to work with. It's been well, fine. I, I've run out of my questions. I just want to tell you that you're four amazing, inspirational human beings. And uh, I learn every time I talk to a patient with mesothelioma. Um, it makes me a better person and a better doctor to hear about your stories. In the couple of minutes I've left, I thought maybe we would just, I don't have a question, uh, but there may be people who are newly diagnosed or concerned that they may have mesothelioma and are about to go through a diagnostic procedure. In 30 seconds or less, what would you want someone to know who might be facing this decision. So let's start with Chris. Just uh, go to a specialist, go to somebody who knows what they're doing that works on me. So don't, don't just go to a regular doctor, just go to somebody immediately uh, that can treat it the way it needs to be treated. That's the most important thing for me. That's what saved me was Heather giving me that information. And, and I can't stress enough to go see a specialist. John, I mean, it's exactly what I would say too. Uh, don't look and don't look at the statistics. Um, I think one of the biggest mistakes people make is they look at the statistics and they think that that applies in all cases. Well, statistics are just statistics. They're not. They're not you. You. You are generally not a statistic. So, um, if I had relied on those statistics when I was diagnosed, uh, I would have written myself off eight years ago. Um, I here I am eight years later. Um, yeah, so you have to kind of go into this with a clear mind, as hard as it is, 
and just make sure that you go to that specialist and you listen to everything they say, including um, ignoring the statistics, which most of them will tell you to do. Heather, words of wisdom? Surround yourself with a good community. The MISO Foundation is one of the best for that. Um, people who have been through what you've gone through to serve as a beacon of hope and to serve as a mentor of sorts. Um, so you know that you're not crazy when you have these lightning pains going through your left side, like what is that? Um, and that these things that creep up are not cancer, that it's normal. And so having a mentor of sorts or a community surrounding you, in addition to what Chris and John said of um, a specialist, I think has probably been the most beneficial thing that I've found. Jim, you get the last word. What are your... What, what? Again, the specialist, I'm so thankful that my local oncologist, as soon as he saw it was mesothelioma, said, I'm sending you to the team down in Madison. They've been wonderful. Um, and just, you know, like John said, you just don't look at the statistics. The first time we met with the oncologist down there, we, he asked what we knew about it. And we said, well, just what we Googled. And he said, don't ever Google it. <laughs> and so, you know, just trust in your doctors, trust in yourself, do what you can and love your life. I think that's a great last phrase. Enjoy every day. I've learned so much from you today. Thank you for letting me moderate this discussion, but you guys are the true heroes. Uh, okay. And to all of you, I wish you a good weekend. Be safe. Thank, Thank you, you Dr. Sturman. We sure appreciate this. Thank you, doctor. Thanks. Yeah, Thank thanks. you, everybody.